Good morning, everyone. Um, so as Jasmine said, my name is Alicia Lee, and I am one of the elders here at LMCC. And I'm so happy to be standing up here and looking out at you all and speaking to you all. I have been praying over this message, and I've been praying over what can happen after this message. So I'm standing up here with expectant hope and expectant joy. Um, so this fall, we're in this sermon series called Glorifying God glorifying God. And last week, Marcy defined glorifying God this way. She said, glorifying God means to put him in that most high place of weighty importance. And she said, that's what we were created for, was to glorify God. That's a great definition. And this morning, I want to add to that great definition. Um, the Bible says in Genesis that we were created in God's image. So I want to add to the de definition of glorifying God that it means to also bear his image. It means to look like him, to reflect him, right? To love like him. All right, let's put a pin in that thought for a moment. We'll come back to it later. Um, if you are following along in our church reading plan, then you should have just read 1 John, or maybe you're just about to read it. Um, 1 John is one of three letters written by the Apostle John to the early church. Now, this isn't John the Baptist. This is the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was called the disciple that Jesus loved. And he wrote three letters, and 1 John is the first of those three letters. And if I had to summarize 1 John in just a handful of sentences, I'd say this. John says, I've seen Jesus. I've touched Jesus, and you have to believe me, he is the son of God. And if you walk with Jesus, you walk in the light. I love the way he opens this letter. I, I hear in his writing this earnest urgency, like he's beseeching me. I've seen Jesus. I've touched Jesus. He's the son of God. And if you walk with Jesus, you walk in the light. If you walk in the light, you're with Jesus, and you're with each other. And he says, I'm writing this for your joy, for our joy, together. That's chapter one. So far, so good, right? Joy and light and love and Jesus and community, what's not to love? Then you turn to chapter two. And in chapter two, it's like he flips the script. He said in chapter one, I'm writing this for your joy. I'm writing this for our joy. And then he opens chapter two by saying, I'm writing this so you don't sin. Now, if you're anything like me, sometimes when you encounter the word sin in the Bible, it's like you can hit a brick wall. Sin. Sin. It sounds so bad, right? It sounds so evil, right? And that's like, on one hand, on the other hand, it kind of can sound ancient and out of touch in this modern world that we live in, you know, especially for us here in New York City. As Christians, we know we're all sinners. We know that. But how often do we stop and think about sin and think about our sin? Um, even if you're a Christian, I think sometimes you can skip over that brick wall, skip over chapter two and look for something more uplifting in chapter three, right? Look for that joy again. Um, but I want to do it differently this morning. Um, I want to spend some time on this sin stuff 
You know, I know it's not uplifting, but I think we need it. I know I need it, right? So let me just be absolutely clear. I am preaching this to myself, too. All right, so I want everyone to take just a couple minutes right now together, and I want everyone to think about what is sin, right? Imagine that the person sitting next to you is tapping you on the shoulder and asking you, hey, I don't know what sin is. Can you tell me? Can you define it for me? Like, let's take a few moments and just think about what you would say. What is sin? I bet a couple of you have a pretty good definition forming in your minds. Um, But maybe some of you are drawing a blank, and that's okay. My hunch, though, is that when most of us think about sin, our minds jump to the big bad stuff right? Like Marcy said last week, she kind of joked. She said, you know, most of you aren't thinking about murdering someone. Most of you aren't thinking about robbing a bank, and if you are, please come talk to Marcy. Go talk to Marcy. Um, But she, she joked about it because I think when most of us think about sin, we do think about those big bad things that you do to other people, and that's not necessarily the stuff that we struggle with day in and day out, but that doesn't mean we don't sin. My goal today is to stretch our definition of sin, to stretch it out so that when we get to the second chapter of 1 John, it doesn't seem or sound or feel irrelevant, right? That it, it, it doesn't just stay here at two disperses. It's got to follow us out the door and into our daily lives. That's what I want to talk about today, our daily lives, the choices that we make in our daily lives. And I'm not really talking about the fork in the road stuff, like, should I move to this city or marry that person? And I'm not talking about the stuff that's, like, obviously bad for us, right? Like, this morning I'm not talking about, like, if you're struggling with addiction. All of that stuff can be part of the conversation. But today, today I want to shine a spotlight on those choices that we make in our everyday lives, and especially that stuff that's in the gray area. Um, All right, so um, before we get to the gray area, what do our lives look like? Well, from the time we wake up in the morning um, to the time we go to sleep, our day is a series of choices. You know, most of us have made these bigger picture decisions about our lives, so it doesn't always feel that way, right? Because our lives sort of revolve around routines and responsibilities. You know, you get up at a certain time, you have breakfast, you go to work, or you take care of your kids. Um, but between all that, there are lots and lots of choices. We face lots of choices like the following. Should I buy that new sweater? Should I work late tonight? Should I have another beer? Should I take an edible? Should I go out tonight? Should I go on that trip? Should I watch another show? That's the gray area that I want to be in today, that set of everyday choices where we face where nothing seems clearly bad or wrong. Some of it actually seems kind of good. Some of it actually seems like maybe even God has it for us. That's where I want to be today as we read 1 John as a church, as we think about what sin means. 
Um, so Jasmine read the scripture for today, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. I want to talk about the first half of that scripture. It says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. So that's the Apostle Paul talking, and he's talking to the church at Corinth. And it seems like perhaps Paul is quoting the Corinthians back to themselves. It seems like the Corinthians were the ones who were saying, I have the right to do anything. In 1 Corinthians, those early Christians actually understood quite a bit. They understood that they were freed from Old Testament requirements around food and festivals. They understood that they were saved by Christ, that they were free from their sins, that they were forgiven. But you also get the sense that perhaps they were using that freedom as an excuse to live however they wanted to live, to do whatever they wanted to do. And Paul quotes them back to themselves. I have the right to do anything you say, and then he counters them. He says, well, okay, but not everything is beneficial. Here in this verse, Paul isn't talking about what's beneficial to God or beneficial to other people. That's important too. But here in this verse, he is very specifically talking about what is beneficial to you. Full stop. What benefits you? What is good for you? Raise your hand if you want to make really good choices for yourself. If you want to make good and healthy and beneficial choices that bring you joy, right? Now raise your hand if you think you achieve that. Raise your hand if you make really good choices for yourself, like all the time. The good choice, the healthy choice, the beneficial choice that brings you lots of joy. The good news is that we are in good company because Paul would be raising his hand at that second question. Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, who wrote most of the New Testament. Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, he cries out. This is the cry of his heart. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, I want to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil, the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. I don't do the good I want to do. And it's especially hard when it comes to doing the things that are good for me, good for myself. We all want to do what's good for ourselves. And I think most of us know what that good thing is, right? Like I think most of us start out keenly aware of what the good thing is and we are not confused by that. But where we get confused is when our desires come into the picture. We get fooled by our desires. Our view of what is good for us becomes clouded by our desires. And our desires aren't all bad. They're not all bad. Some of them are good. Marcy told us last week, and this was, I, I, this was something I knew I learned. She said the word desire means of father, of the father. So your desires, when they're connected to God, can be good. But the problem is they're often disconnected from God. And they are the things that satisfy us in the short term but that do not benefit us in the long term. What does the book of James say about our desires when they're disconnected from God? James says it's our desires which entice us and drag us away from what is good. 
Like, what a picture, right? Our desires drag us away from what is good. And then he says this. This is another picture for you. It's our desires which give birth to sin. And he doesn't mince words, James. He says it's our desires which lead to death. And we don't always recognize our desires for what they are because they take many different shapes. And our desires love to wear disguises. Here's what some of them look like. We desire to please others. We desire to be accepted, to be celebrated even in this world. We desire pleasure. We desire relief. We desire rest. We desire safety and security and power and prominence. We desire to be desired. It's all of these and more that James say entice us and drag us away from the good. So this gray area that I want to talk about today, this gray area where we find ourselves making choices, our desires get really busy in this gray area. There's a lot for them to do because in this gray area, there's this really important thing called balance that often determines whether a thing is good or bad for you. And desire has this way of pushing that fulcrum so that you get knocked out of balance, so that the good becomes bad, so that the blessing becomes curse. Balance. It's a word that I've spent a lot of time thinking about over these past many months, maybe because I often, often feel out of balance, especially these days. Too much of that, not enough of this, right? Too many responsibilities, not enough time. Too much food, not enough exercise. Too much to drink, too many episodes of Suits. You were wondering who's watching Suits. I'm watching Suits. Not enough sleep, too much work, not enough prayer. Um, I am in a season of life that is abundant with blessing. Work, leadership, children, my family, all that purpose and opportunity, all blessing from the Lord, food, drink, entertainment, all blessing, blessing upon blessing, but any single one of those things out of balance, and the blessing can quickly become a curse. And there's this thought I've had over these past many months as I've thought about balance and struggled with balance, and that thought is that nothing in this world is all good. Absolutely nothing in this world is all good because really everything in this world is meant to point us to God. God is the only one, only thing that is all good. Everything else, everything in creation has the potential to be bad, even the really good stuff. Here's an example. Water. Water is good. 60% of the earth is water. Maybe it's 70%. 60% of me is water, right? Um, You can survive without water for about three days before you go into organ failure. Water is good. It's probably the most essential ingredient in this world. But there is such a thing as drinking too much water. Did you know that? If you drink too much water, it can knock off the sodium content of your blood, and that's actually life-threatening. If you spend too much time in too much water, you will drown. Even water has the potential to be bad. And this applies to totally mundane things too, I realize. Like, take one of these chairs, for example. 
Who cares about a chair, right? We can have as many chairs as we want, but think about this room completely filled with chairs, like forwards and backwards, left to right, all the way to the windows, like just completely filled with chairs. We couldn't be here. We couldn't have Sunday service. We couldn't worship. It's silly, I know, but the point is balance. And I think nothing in this world illustrates our struggle with balance more than our completely fraught relationship with time. Time was supposed to be good. God gave us time to create order in this world. Um, in Genesis, it says that God called the light day and he called the night Uh, He called the dark night, and that was the first day. So time was supposed to give us space to fulfill our purpose, and then it was supposed to bring rest. But sin brought death, and with death, time became finite. So instead of bringing order to our days, time became this inexorable metric that marks our finite lives. And I mentioned that fulcrum point earlier, right? The point of balance, In so many of the choices that we're faced with, it's time that's the fulcrum point that determines balance and it gets pushed to the right and pushed to the left. Too much time spent doing this, too too, too little time spent doing that. And it's our desires that do that pushing. And so we're always fighting time imbalance. So maybe this is you here, maybe you're this person. I don't have enough time to do all the work I need to do. I don't have enough time for my kids. I don't have enough time to call my parents. I don't have time to hang out. I don't have time for anything, right? Or maybe you're this person here. This person says, okay, I can't admit it, but I've got too much time. I don't have a job. I don't have kids. I don't have the right friends. I have too much time. I've got to kill time. And the crazy thing is, even this person here watches Netflix at 1 o'clock in the morning. Just killing time, just demolishing time. We just give pieces of our life, pieces of time to the devil all day and all night. My friend Renee said in our community group once, uh, it was so deep I had to write it down. She said, even time is oppressed in the broken world. Even time is oppressed in the broken world. She was talking about Ephesians chapter 5 where it says this, Be careful then, be very careful how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That's what the Bible says, the days are evil. So nothing illustrates our struggle with balance more than our relationship with time, but it's not just time. Right? We struggle to make good choices with other things, too, with things we consume, things we buy, things we scroll, things we eat, things we drink. And most of those things aren't bad, not in and of themselves, but we rarely find that right balance. We have a hard time making the choice that's beneficial. So you might be wondering now, okay, okay but like, how do I know? The view is cloudy. Right? Like, how do I know that this is an area where I'm out of balance? Well, the Bible in its wisdom doesn't offer us specifics. It doesn't give us a detailed breakdown of what balance means in this circumstance or that circumstance. You know, it doesn't set out where that line is between how much is good until it becomes bad. But instead, the Bible gives us this. It gives us this test. 
Um, in that same verse that Jasmine read from 1 Corinthians 6.12, we read the first half of it already. The second half, Paul goes on to say this. He says, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's the test. What are you mastered by? All right, I want to do a little case study together. Don't worry, there's no PowerPoint or slides. It's just a very simple little scenario that I want to take you through. Um, take Bob. Bob loves sneakers. Bob has 25 pairs of sneakers, and he's got his eye on number 26. Oh, uh, today they're in his size, and so he's going to go ahead and buy sneaker uh, number 26, and he's excited and can't wait to get them in five to seven business days. That's Bob. Now, over here, we have my friend Mike, and Mike loves sneakers, too. Um, Mike has five pairs of sneakers, and he's looking at pair number six. He's at his eye on them, but he doesn't want to buy them. He really shouldn't buy them. For a lot of reasons, he really shouldn't be buying anything, but he can't stop thinking about them. He thinks about those sneakers when he's working. He thinks about those sneakers when he's playing basketball. He goes to sleep thinking about his sneakers until he can't stand it and he jumps out of bed and he buys the sneakers. And he's excited. He's excited about these sneakers, but he's something else too. He feels this yucky feeling that is like a mix of guilt and regret and maybe even a little bit of shame. So who is mastered? by his love of sneakers. Is it Bob or is it Mike? Bob has 25 and wants 26. Mike has five and wants six. And yet I would say it's Mike who's mastered by it. Mike doesn't want another pair, but he can't stop himself. It is a silly example, and I'm sure you can poke a million holes in it, but I think it makes the point, which is that the Bible in its wisdom doesn't set out specifics for us. The Bible doesn't tell us how many pairs of sneakers or how many nights out or how many glasses of wine or how many episodes watched or how many hours worked. The line is, where it is, is different for everybody. But the line itself is the same. Has it mastered you? If you don't want to, but you can't stop yourself, then chances are it has mastered you. If you don't want to, but you can't stop yourself, chances are it's not beneficial. If you don't want to, but you can't stop yourself, chances are you are in sin. And we need to understand sin. We need to understand that sin's not out here, okay? Sin is not uh, a thousand pairs of sneakers. Sin is not blackout drunk, right? Sin is here. It's right here where we are. And it will always be right here if we can't understand that it is relevant, and the Bible will always seem irrelevant if we can't understand that. All right, so I'm going to wrap it up with one more thought about sin, um, which is that you can't talk about sin without talking about confession, and then one more thought on 1 John. Um, so the thought on sin is this. The goal of the Christian life isn't to avoid sin. Not sinning is not the goal. It's not what we were created for. Marcy told us what we were created for last week. She said we were created to glorify God. That's where we started the conversation with this morning. We were created to glorify him, which means to put him in that most high place 
and to bear his image, to reflect him, to mirror him, to look like him, and to love like him. That's what we were created for. In Hebrew, the word for sin means to miss the goal. So sin is not actually a thing unto itself. If there's no goal, then there's no sin. And so to sin means to fall short of the goal, which is to glorify God. And so it makes sense that we'd have a hard time understanding sin because we have a hard time understanding the goal. But if we can start to understand the goal, if we can start to understand what it means to glorify God, then we'll start to understand that sin's not just about that big bad stuff. It's not just the commandments. You know, it's the things that we do to ourselves. It's the choices we make that just don't benefit us. It's the stuff that's mastered us, keeps us from looking and loving like God. And we can't talk about sin without talking about confession. Right? Confession is another brick wall word in the Bible. It's another word that's so loaded that I think a lot of us can kind of just gloss over. So hard for us to approach confession. Um, but what strikes me about confession is that, like sin, it's actually not a thing unto itself. Um, confession actually requires an object, and we tend to pack guilt or sin into that definition of confession by making it the object, but that's not uh, that's not how it works, at least not in the Bible. The first time I had this thought was actually when I read Romans, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And I thought, that's weird. But it, it opened up my mind to this word confession, and it turns out that the Greek word for confession has a meaning that is more like agreement. So if you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you agree that he is Lord. And if I approach confession of sin that way, with this word agreement in mind, then confession of sin means that I'm coming into agreement with the Bible that I have fallen short of my goal of glorifying God. And now I can start to understand the power of confession. The power of confession is not to get something off your chest. The power of confession lies in coming into agreement with the gospel. The gospel, the good news, which says that in the beginning, God created us in his image to live in joy in his presence, but we rebelled. And as a result, we had to suffer his wrath. We had to suffer death. But God had a plan. He had a plan which started when he chose the nation of Israel to reflect his glory to the world. And through miracles, signs, and wonders, God showed up for the people of Israel. He rescued Israel again and again, but they, we, failed to reflect his glory. God's plan continued to unfold until God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, came to restore us, came to suffer and to die on the cross. He paid the price on the cross for our sins, and then three days later, God raised him from the dead. Confession is not a price we have to pay. The price has already been paid. And when we confess our sin, we come into agreement with that good news, and we walk in the light and that 
is what 1 John invites us into. John has seen Jesus. He has touched Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. And God loves us beyond measure. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's great and perfect love for us. John's inviting us to walk in that light, to walk with Jesus and to walk with each other, to step out of the darkness, to be freed from our sin, freed from the chains of the ways where we fall short. That's First John, and you don't want to miss it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and for inviting us into it. Lord, I sense that this morning, as we've been talking, that there are people here who maybe have had something float to the front of their minds as we've been talking, some area where they feel out of balance and out of control, Lord, where maybe something has mastered them. But Lord, I just lift up these people to you right now, and I pray that you prompt them. I pray that you prompt them to come into agreement with you about the ways in which they've fallen short. I pray that you would pull them out of the darkness and into the light. Lord, I also sense that there are some people who are also out of balance and who also have not yet confessed that Jesus is Lord and who maybe felt a stirring when I read from Romans about confessing that Jesus is Lord. God, would you prompt these people to come into agreement with you about who Jesus is, Lord? Would you pull them out of the darkness and into the light? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.